0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 19th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Last Tuesday I saw the first oral arguments offered to a newly constituted Supreme Court, as its just confirmed Ninth Justice joined his new peers for the young term's second week. That day also marked another notable first. This one relating to gender parity in the hallowed institution, which was long exclusively the domain of male judges, clerks, and attorneys. For the first time, women will comprise a majority of the Supreme Court's law clerk class. This term, 25 of the 48 clerks are female. It's a milestone that stands in somewhat stark contrast to other gender imbalances that persist. Last term, per SCOTUS blog statistics, only 12% of advocates who argued before the court were women, The New York Times reported this summer that federal judgeships are only about a quarter filled with female jurists, and of course two-thirds of the high court's members are men. One optimistic way to view the new clerk class then might be as something of a leading indicator, signaling a legal profession and justice system shifting, perhaps fitfully, towards greater parity as members of this clerk class springboard into prominent future positions, but for many this historic moment is difficult to disentangle from the troubling, tumultuous confirmation process that immediately preceded it. One where accusations of sexual assault forced a collective national reckoning with issues of gender dynamics, sexual assault, and power. It was a political and social tempest that, seems fair to say, left many disillusioned, and for many different reasons. The connection between that process and the majority female clerk class is all the more salient because the milestone was reached, thanks in part due to New Justice Kavanaugh's all-female four-clerk cohort, the class some view as assembled at least with some regard to political strategy which, of course, is not to knock the credentials of any of those new clerks. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by two former Supreme Court clerks who we'll help try to make some sense of the swirling, divisive, gender-related issues that have sat at the front of our country's collective conscience these past couple of months. Our guests are Tara Cole, who's a partner with Gang, Tyre, Raymer & Brown in Beverly Hills, and a former clerk for Antonin Scalia, and also Professor Sherry Kolb of Cornell Law School who clerked for Harry Blackman. But before hearing from Ms. Cole and Professor Kolb, it's time for our opening briefs, a short roundup of California-focused appellate news. A set of recently appointed Superior Court judges will temporarily serve as California Supreme Court justices to act on an appeal over whether state jurists are owed millions of dollars in back pay due to years of miscalculated raises. The High Court's six members officially recused themselves earlier this week, making way for the stand-in judges, all of whom took office last year after salaries were raised to comply with a court order in the case. That court order sided with the class of former and current bench officers, and the Second District Court of Appeals affirmed. The state asked the High Court to grant review, and now these six fairly freshly minted Superior Court judges will decide whether to do so, and indeed will be tasked with determining the matter on the merits if review is granted. In an environmental law and property rights dispute likely to replay itself in beach communities throughout the state as those localities grapple with coastal erosion and rising seas, the 4th District Court of Appeal Wednesday upheld certain Solana Beach regulations limiting coastal development or redevelopment that would require the erection of seawalls or other such barriers. The ruling was largely procedural, but the panel did weigh in on the constitutional takings claim questions at issue, finding any such claims to succeed would need to be brought on an as-applied basis. As our Orange County reporter, Mekin wrote Thursday, such challenges seem likely to issue from the Pacific Legal Foundation, which has represented the landowner plaintiffs in the matter. As ever, it's been a busy week in our corner of the federal appellate judiciary. The Ninth Circuit awaits developments as to three newly announced nominees for the circuit bench, and cases involving the Northern District's national DACA injunction and the postpartum expungement Appeals of Sheriff Joe Arpaio saw new filings. Here for a few Ninth Circuit notes is our reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: So uh, you have worn through a good bit of shoe leather the past few weeks and really months, keeping folks up to date as to impending Ninth Circuit nominations uh, issuing from the, the Trump White House. Three sort of intended nominations, but I don't think official nominations were issued last week. They were for uh, an AUSA from the Southern District, Patrick Bumate, who I think is currently on a detail in NDC, and then also for two private practitioners, Daniel Collins and Kenneth Lee here in Los Angeles. What have you heard this week since that announcement? You reported last week that uh, Senator Feinstein, of course the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, voiced her dissatisfaction with the names given in particular, I think you said, uh, Daniel Collins, who's partner at Munger Tolls and Olsen. What have you heard and also Do you have any sense of why the White House would be rolling things out this way, announcing an intention to nominate these three fellows instead of properly nominating them?
1: Well, the uh, decision to announce intentions to nominate is something that um, has been common among some uh, judicial picks for the Trump White House. Um, The White House has regularly announced intentions to nominate, um, and usually the the White House counsel or, or the lawyers sort of shepherding through the nomination, filed the paperwork with the Senate uh, relatively quickly. There have been a few occasions um, where that isn't the case, um, one of those being a package or alleged package deal for federal seats in Washington state. A Ninth Circuit nominee was announced uh, along with two district court picks, uh, one of whom was a Obama holdover who never got confirmed. Um, the Ninth Circuit Uh, pick, uh, Eric Miller, a partner at Perkins Coie, was quickly nominated formally uh, a week later um, back in, I believe it was June or July, and we are still waiting to see those official district court seats in Oregon, and excuse me, in Seattle, uh, receive official nominations. Um, It doesn't seem that there will be uh, that sort of lag with the nominations we heard about last week. It doesn't seem that the California senators are going to support the nominees, but the White House does seem prepared to move forward. Chuck Grassley, the senator uh, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, is moving ahead with uh, hearings uh, throughout the Senate recess this month, and there is a hearing planned uh, for next Wednesday, um, and at least one Ninth Circuit pick is expected to appear. It's not clear whom. This hasn't been released yet, um, but as of an hour ago when I checked the congressional records, none of the nominees had appeared officially in, uh, in that register.
0: Moving on to uh, another Ninth Circuit note here, you reported on, on Thursday that there's a new filing in the DACA-related case that's percolating through the Ninth Circuit, after an, an injunction was preliminarily issued in the, in the Northern District that uh, joined nationwide. The Department of Justice's rescission of that policy, the, the, the DACA policy. Um, so what is this, this new filing? The, this is um, the DOJ asking the Ninth Circuit to sort of hurry it up already and, 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 and finally issue a ruling as to whether it thinks that injunction is okay so they can go ahead and get it up to the Supreme Court where they might anticipate a more favorable outcome.
1: That's right. Um, On Wednesday, the Department of Justice wrote to the Ninth Circuit clerk saying that the government would petition for cert by the end of this month, um, October 31st, if it does not hear from the Ninth Circuit. Um, This isn't, I guess, entirely uh, surprising. The DOJ tried to skip the Ninth Circuit entirely at the beginning of the year, seeking a cert petition. Uh, directly from the district court injunction Uh, that request was declined by the justices in February Uh, but there was um, a a one-sentence order in which the court uh, said that they expected the Ninth Circuit to quote proceed expeditiously to decide this case Uh, the Ninth Circuit before any of this happened had already fast-tracked the appeal and uh, set it on a faster briefing schedule at the request of the Justice Department. It was argued in May, uh, May 15th to be exact, and uh, we're here now in October with no decision. A five month period in between an oral argument and a final decision is not uh, a long time when it comes uh, to regular appeals in the Ninth Circuit. In fact, that might be one of a uh, quicker schedule for something. Um, of this sort of importance. But uh, the DOJ apparently is not happy that they do not have a decision yet, and they already go to the Supreme Court with or without uh, Ninth Circuit review.
0: Okay, maybe just one last one. There's another interesting fight in in the Ninth Circuit over former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio's attempt to uh, expunge his criminal conviction for contempt of court after he was pardoned by the president. Um, The interesting quirk here is, he tried to do that. The, the the lower court ruled against him, and the Department of Justice decided it had no interest in fighting against the sheriff on his appeal. So that the Ninth Circuit has assigned now a special prosecutor to do that. Uh, you have written that that idea that the the court should sort of step in where the advocate here, the federal government, doesn't care to to fight um, divides the court a bit along ideological lines, with some judges thinking if the government's not willing to take up this fight, then the court shouldn't really be trying to, to help them. What's going on there?
1: That's right. In uh, April, a motions panel of the Ninth Circuit said that a special prosecutor uh,
0: would be assigned
1: to the case to defend, uh, for the purposes of the appeal, the district court's decision not to vacate um, former Sheriff Arpaio's conviction. Um, the judge's the majority judges who authored that order cited Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure um, 42A2, um, which says that in the situation where uh, the government declines to ar- argue a case on appeal, the court, quote, must appoint another attorney to prosecute the contempt conviction. Um, and so uh, the Ninth Circuit cited this sort of rarely used statute and said their hands were tied to, um, and that they were required to appoint someone. Uh, conservative judges on the court have said that that's unnecessary. It's, uh, this is another example of judicial overreach. Um, and there was a uh, internal call to review that decision on Bonk. Um, that vote failed. Judge William Fletcher wrote uh, in concurrence to explain. Um, why, uh, why the decision was correct to appoint a special prosecutor. Um, and several of his liberal colleagues signed their names uh, to, to that decision. And uh, I know his attorneys, uh, Arpaio's attorneys, told me that by within uh, three weeks, they expect to um, file a petition for a writ of mandamus to the Supreme Court uh, seeking review on this matter.
0: And and so the the news I suppose this week the the latest news is that that special prosecutor has been named is that is that right who who is that
1: That's correct. Um this week the court announced that it had selected a uh, Los Angeles partner Boyle Schiller and Flexner. His name is Christopher Caldwell. He's a highly respected sort of white-collar attorney here. Um he um began his career in the early uh, excuse me in the mid-80s in the DOJ's public integrity section. Um, it's not quite clear how he was selected. That process isn't publicly disclosed, but those credentials might have helped his selection. It's interesting to note that um, the conservative blog of the court doesn't seem to give up on its lament over this decision. Um, Judge Talman, who dissented from the original order announcing that a prosecutor would be appointed, wrote a concurrence to say, uh, basically that he had no objection to Caldwell uh, as a person being selected, but that he was regrettably concurring with the decision to appoint him because he still had qualms about, uh, I guess, the legality of this move.
0: Nick Sonnenberg, our Circuit Beat reporter. Thanks for hopping on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Brian.
0: The confirmation of now-Justice Brett Kavanaugh deepened social and political divides as bitter fights played out in the U.S. Capitol, on the floor of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and on television and computer screens across the country. The fight centered on the gender-tinged issue of how to regard sexual assault allegations against a powerful man on the precipice of high office. That fight yielded to news last week that the Supreme Court's law clerk class will this year, for the first time, include a majority of women, including four Kavanaugh clerks. To help make sense of all these swirling gender-related issues, we're very pleased to be joined now by two former Supreme Court law clerks. One is Tara Cole, a partner with Gang Tire, Raymer & Brown in Beverly Hills. Ms. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And Professor Sherry Kolb from Cornell Law School. She's also a frequent uh, commentator and author. I most recently have a book weaving together some common threads between the anti-abortion, pro-life movement, and, and animal rights movement. Uh, Professor Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to have you both here. Uh, Ms. Cole, you clerked for Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court, and Professor Yu spent time clerking there for Harry Blackman, a, a Nixon, a point to you, ended up taking a turn towards the, the left side of the political spectrum, an interesting turn, and I was hoping to speak with you both here apropos of a story that was um, heralded by the New York Times, among other outlets, a couple of weeks ago as the, the Supreme Court took its, its second week of October term 2018 then with its, full com- with its full complement of justices, the story being that for the first time in its history, the high court will have a, a majority female law clerk class. And that uh, achieved, at least in part, by dint of the newest member, Brett Kavanaugh, bringing a, an all-female four-member cohort. That second piece there kind of introduces to the, the story some additional gender-related strains and, and issues, sort of residual of his, his hearings and confirmation process that was a fairly uh, heated fight and an a lot of gender issues over the past few weeks. We'll sort of get to that part in just a minute, but I just want to talk about just about the uh, the majority class it, itself and, and how consequential that is as, as you view it. So, um, Professor, maybe we could start by regarding how big a, a change it is, how significant of a moment it is to have a majority Female class. I was doing some some pretty quick sort of back of the napkin math, looking over some recent terms, and it didn't seem like the numbers were terribly close to equal. So it seems like this is a a, a a noticeable change from previous practice. I don't know how it was when when you were there in terms of gender numbers, but what's your thought on how big of a change this is?
2: Well, when I was there, my recollection is that there were eight female law clerks out of I guess it was thirty eight altogether. And so that, you know, that's a big chance. In fact, I remember once emailing and it was the first year that the Supreme Court had email. And uh, I I just wrote to all of the women law clerks and invited them to lunch. And I said, you know, because we could all fit around a table Mm -hmm. and everyone was interested in going except one. And that was um, Justice Thomas's clerk, Laura Ingram
0: wonder her particular hesitancy. She uh, has said
2: so, that she didn't believe in separate but equal for women.
0: Ms. Uh, Ms. Cole, are, are your experience is somewhat similar from your time at the, at the Supreme Court in terms of the gender balance of the, the clerk class?
3: I was going to say, I didn't clerk with Laura Ingram. I, in terms of the gender balance, I think ours was significantly more, ba- closer to balanced. It wasn't equal among we were 35 clerks. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I, it felt closer to equal when I was there. I, for, as a Scalia clerk, I was the only woman in a chamber of four, but yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't recall it feeling deeply imbalanced, but I do, you know, I, in the last, you know, year, couple of years, you know, as these issues have been really spoken about much more bluntly, and we brought these issues much more to the forefront. You know, I think you take for granted, or I think in those days, I took for granted the fact that, you know, I was never, there was never going to be a majority of women in the room. And I, I didn't really notice it very much. And so, you know, I don't know how that feels now, but I think, you know, I think it is, let me say, with a with some dose of cynicism around the Kavanaugh for, you know, the, which isn't to, to, to speak about their achievements. I'm sure they're incredibly deserving of their clerkships, but, you know, I just, Feel like it may have been a political decision to have four women that year. I do think it's incredible and and terrific to hear that there's actually finally a majority of women. I think that's actually a really, a really good change.
0: Just as a sort of a point of procedural order, there, Ms. Cole, we can assume that Brett Kavanaugh had that law clerk class largely decided before sort of the more uh, gender salient issues regarding sexual assault, uh, came up. that I agree. I that's think that's okay. right. Okay. I think
3: that's right. And I still I still can't help but have some questions about the motivation behind it. Not, not that anybody thought that these issues would necessarily have come up in the way that they did, but uh, I feel like at the forefront of that, you know, from the, the day of the appointment, it did seem like there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, how many women he had hired. Certainly, I don't think that anyone was anticipating what happened happening. I just feel like it was... Maybe a little bit of, and, and this is where, again, my cynicism comes in, but maybe a little bit of, you know, uh, coming out because, because they weren't appointing, they were, they were not going to appoint a woman, they were appointing a man, you know, that, that, that would soften the blow of that.
2: Yeah, he, when the nomination was announced, he made a point of, of talking about how he'd hire so many women clerks and that he coached girls basketball, and so I would have to agree, agree with the, the cynical at least somewhat
0: cynical approach. Yeah, we'll we'll bring sort of center stage in this conversation, Judge Kavanaugh and, or Justice Kavanaugh now, and and some of those sort of confounding and seemingly countervailing thoughts and issues in, in just a moment. But uh, a couple more on 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 the consequential nature of this first at the Supreme Court. I I've seen a few reactions. One being more along the lines of sort of you know maybe. Not being underwhelmed, but just a, sort of a, a reaction, thinking that this is you know it's sort of about time that that this class r- largely reflects the the gender numbers at, at, at law school, and so it shouldn't be terribly surprising that now the clerk class reflects um, the, gen- the gender population in law schools. But how is the best way to view this number in in relation? You know, if if it, folks might say it should be unsurprising that things are fairly equal, that seems to ignore some other gender disparity numbers that that do seem to still exist. If you look at uh, the SCOTUS blog's uh, stat pack from this previous term, they look at things like gender of of advocates before the Supreme Court, and I think roughly 12% of the advocates this last term had been women. That's down from previous numbers, but had only been sort of about 20%. Of course, the court itself, uh, still, predominantly male with three female justices. Uh, an ABA study came out suggesting, in August, suggesting that firm equity partners were still largely tilted towards males. Ms. Cole, do you have thoughts on, I guess, the best way to view this clerk uh, class in relation to to those sorts of sort of still uh, imbalanced numbers?
3: Sure, I have. I have a lot of thoughts. I listen. I I think that it's it's great that there is a gender balance on. Um, in terms of the clerks, but that's, you know, there are 36 clerks. It's not a lot relative to the population of lawyers. And I think, you know, there's, there's going to be still a lot of progress in the legal profession that needs to get made. I think that when you look at it, right, law schools have been, I think, relatively equal for some time. And, and so something is happening between the moment that people graduate law school And, you know, their path, you know, toward becoming equity partners at law firms, becoming Supreme Court justices, becoming advocates in front of the Supreme Court, that's changing the equity balance. I suppose, you know, the fact that there are, look, if I want to extrapolate out and who knows, I think when you're coming out of the Supreme Court, to be very honest, it's a very rarefied air that you're walking into and that you're breathing. And I think that sets you up for a lot of success professionally. It sets you up with a real presumption that you're going to succeed. It doesn't mean that everybody who comes out of the Supreme Court does succeed, but it certainly it certainly sets you up in an incredible way with a lot of advantages. Um, and so, you know, when I think about it, I think, okay, the more Supreme Court clerks there are, the more likely we will have, you know, more top female professors, top equity partners at firms, advocates in front of the Supreme Court, people who are maybe on the path to becoming Supreme Court justices. And if you look at the recently nominated Supreme Court justices, a number of them have been Supreme Court clerks. So, you know, in that sense, you're adding a handful of numbers to the pack who may have some advantage in achieving those things. But in terms of the breadth of people coming out of law school, you know, I happen to think that, that this probably has very little bearing on on their path. And, you know, the question, the real questions of, of, you know, will there be majority female equity partners at a law firm ever or at most law firms ever, I think that has a lot of, you know, that has a lot of, to do with how law firms behave, what the profession is like. It, it, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered that really have nothing to do with what's the composition of the Supreme Court. Clerk
0: class. Professor, do you have uh, thoughts on on that as well?
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think there's a lot to that, that we are talking about a small number of people. And so it's unlikely that, you know, even if every one of them becomes an equity partner, except the ones who become, you know, a Supreme Court justice, Mm -hmm. the the, the odds are, are pretty good that 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 will not change the numbers because it's a small group of people but the hope i think is that they serve as a kind of role model and they also they also make the people that they work with more comfortable with having an equal, a, a woman who's equal around because i think to when it's a very small number that there are men who simply aren't you know they they mean well but they are not comfortable uh, having female equals around them. Um, I mean, Justice Brennan was in many ways great in terms of his jurisprudence for equality, but I don't think he had any female law clerks at all. Mm-hmm. And there were women graduating, you know, at the top of their class in law school around that time, even though there were fewer maybe. But so, I you know, I think that Part of, the, part of the point of having a lot of incredibly successful women is that they then inspire other women and they also create an atmosphere where perhaps ideally men start to take it for granted that women are, are equals, and that really comes from, from working around people. So hopefully they're not just sure. the individuals they are, but also they usher something in, you know, maybe... I think
3: that's a great point, and I think it also goes to the question of what do people think a lawyer looks like? You know, a top lawyer. What does a top lawyer look like when you're a client, you're general counsel of a major company, or you're somebody who's got a litigation matter, or a corporate matter that's incredibly important to you? You know, and you walk in a room and you think, well, who is the person I'm going to hire? I think there is, and I've, you know, sort of wrestled with this in my own career and my own practice. There is an expectation, I think, in some people's minds. what does a lawyer look like to some people of certain generations? A lawyer looks like an older man with gray hair or right. you know or some version of that. And I think that so much of having you know top women in the field as as sort of it's not just as role models for the people around them, but it sort of changes the conversation and changes the perception of what is my lawyer going to look like? And I think that that's actually, even just that representation can be can be meaningful on a psychological level for people.
0: We've sort of spoken about the, the potential impact that, that this event could have on on the legal profession more generally. I'd like to ask um, what impact it could have on on the court, uh, perhaps uh, in, 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 in an immediate sense in terms of this term or in, I suppose, subsequent terms if this equity keeps up. Professor, what sort of effect could... Having a majority female class have on say things like what cases might get heard or you know what justices might focus on in terms of the precedent they look at to help them queue up questions for or argument. is there any you know extent to which this equity could impact the way the opinions eventually get written or votes even get cast? Um, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I think it's very hard to predict something like that because in part it's because, Uh, The justices that are currently on the Supreme Court, I think, pretty much know what they think about a whole range of issues that are likely to come before them. You know, notwithstanding their professions of agnosticism during their respective hearings. And so the odds that law clerk is going to persuade any of the people currently on the Supreme Court that they should change their mind on something or come out a different way, I think is unlikely, except on issues where there's no real ideological uh, component. And then it's not clear how gender would even bear on on those issues, particularly. So I I, I think that sometimes where there's like a new, uh, you know, you don't always know what the controversial issue of tomorrow is going to be. And so there's some new issue and people are, are haven't yet thought about it and aren't sure what they think about it, you know, that a law clerk can make a difference. But again, it's not as though you have a random sampling of, you know, the top talent among females clerking for the court. Most of the justices, you know, Justice Scalia was actually an exception and he would hire people from different points of view and he enjoyed I mean, obviously, I can. You know, um, I can't tell you directly, but <laughs> yeah. So you know, but most um, most of the justices, you know, are not that interested in debating with their law clerks, and so they hire people for the most part. Actually, Justice Kennedy would also uh, hire for for a lot of the time people in different of different ideological camps, but. I think now that, that that's going to be determinative. So even if, in general, women are going to take a different view of things, that you're not getting in general. You're getting people selecting. So, I, you know, I suspect that they're not going. And in terms of cert grants, I think, you know, most of the cases are obvious denies, and everybody kind of spots them immediately and, and you know, runs with that. And then occasionally there's a grant, and it's usually because some, You know, there's something very straightforwardly in need of of resolution. And and so I I, you know, it's possible, but I don't necessarily think the clerks are going to affect the caseload or the outcomes.
3: Totally agree with that. I I was I was the the Scalia liberal clerk. (laughs)
2: uh,
3: And, you know, my my experience of 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 being that it was that, you know, Justice Scalia loved to debate to, to and spar and have a conversation. He knew he knew his own mind. He knew how to make up his own mind. Uh, there was very little that I was going to convince him on that would fall into the category of like big ticket type of questions. Sure, if we had a naughty maritime law uh, case and I thought one thing and he thought the other, he was sometimes happy to go, could be persuaded to my side. But, uh, mm. but on, on the kinds of Cases that are, you know, really the, the the cases that I think people are talking about more specifically in the media and concerned about. I don't think it. I don't think it has any bearing. And I think the point about people's ideology is right. I mean, I think we make this assumption sometimes that all women will feel the same about that. That more women are, are left leaning, or that all women will feel the same about gender issues. And the truth is, they they most certainly don't. And uh, and so I think, you know, that that's going to guide people. More than than the fact of their
0: gender. Okay, then maybe just for a little bit here, I'd like to introduce the issues that are more central to, to Brett Kavanaugh in here. Uh, if the the headline of the story from a couple of weeks ago is that uh, it's the first majority female clerk class, the the subhead is that that's occasioned by, as we said, partially by dint of Brett Kavanaugh having a an all female four member class, and then of course the. The next line has to be, that we're just a couple of weeks past, an event at, at which Brett Kavanaugh was the center of just a ton of very, very fervent and very hostile and conflicting and, and intense conversations involving very serious gender issues and a and sort of a communal nationwide reckoning of where exactly we're at when it comes to issues of gender and gender equality. Uh, sexual assault claims how they should be regarded and what sort of level of of proof should be required when they're brought against powerful men in positions like this that deny them. I think it'd be fair to say that plenty thought Brett Kavanaugh's uh, hearings and confirmation represented sort of an unfortunate step back in where we might have thought we were when it comes to gender equity and equality in the country. Others would Disagree with that and say perhaps it was Brett Kavanaugh that was treated unfairly. But I guess the first question might be, Professor, do you think that it can be the case that uh, you know one could regard Judge Justice Kavanaugh's all-female clerk class sort of independent of any of that other stuff and and regard it as a sort of unqualified good as a you know a bit of advancement socially and with regards to gender, or is it all? Absolutely tinged, in your view, by the events that preceded it and the hearing and the confirmation of the justice.
2: I think it's very hard to separate the, his selection of the of, of an all-woman class from his conduct during the hearings and the conduct that I thought was quite effectively proven in the course of the hearings as well. I mean, I think of it as in terms of like if you if you go to a bakery and you find out that there's something really disgusting in in the bakery, then when somebody brings out cookies, it's very hard <laughs> to think about those cookies without thinking about, well, you know, there's this thing that might or might not be in there, and you know so yes, it's you know it's great that when justices hire female clerks and so on, but to me, it's, it's really hard not to see lots of the things he does now as tainted with his prior behavior.
0: Uh, Ms. Cole, do you have thoughts on whether those sort of two issues are, are separable or if they're un, just bound together naturally?
3: I agree with all of that. I think that the, you know, look, I, I, I certainly hope that, that the women who are clerking for him will come out of this as Supreme Court clerks. Right. And without any of the stigma or the question around who they clerked for, because ultimately, you know, out of their control. And so, you know, I I hope that it doesn't leave them feeling like they have an asterisk next to their name or have people question them in any way. I mean, I think that they should be treated and considered Supreme Court clerks who come out because they certainly, I would imagine, were incredibly qualified and worked incredibly hard to get there. So I sort of divorce them and their qualifications from the larger whole, but yes, I mean, I said this before, I, I, you know, I couldn't help but feel like when Brett, came, even, even from the get go when he came out and it was, you know, I have an all female clerk class and I do all these things for women, you know, it felt a little bit as, as a lot of these appointments of recent days do. I mean, it felt a little bit staged um, and a little bit uh, and, and, and a little bit, you know, media focused in order to, to try to, you know, justify or get past the hump of any criticism. And then I think obviously what followed is something that left a pretty indelible mark on everybody in the country um, who is watching and, and, you know, makes it hard for anybody to, at least in the immediate sense, think about Brett Kavanaugh and not associate him with, with those hearings and those events. It's, I think it's impossible. I'm, by the way, I'm in London right now, and that's all anybody is talking to me about. Is wow. is the Kavanaugh hearings, so it's reached far and wide. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's safe to say they they have uh, some things of their own going on right about now as the the Brexit deadline looms. So that's interesting to hear. Um, they,
3: they do, but they're glued to the they're glued to the TV on us.
0: Yeah, interesting. And uh, Miss Cole, as you you mentioned that piece of Kavanaugh's hearings feeling a bit staged. I suppose if one were looking for a cynical purpose, one wouldn't have to look too far because even before. Uh, Professor Bosey Ford came forward with her accusations. There was you know very salient gender threads here relating to Brett Kavanaugh in terms of how his jurisprudence might sort of asymmetrically and negatively impact women potentially, you know most notably in the area of reproductive rights and, and and abortion. So that would lend some you know credence to the thought that there might be something a little bit cynical below the surface. Um Professor, you wrote recently a, a equally a cynical as to why Justice Kavanaugh might be having a all-female clerk cohort. I mean, You sort of muse worrisomely in, in the title, what if Brett Kavanaugh's female law clerks are all beautiful in relation to some stories that came up during his hearings that all his clerks tended to have a certain look, namely uh, beauty, physical beauty. What are you getting at there, and is that another way that you're worried that you know we should be sort of skeptically looking at His historic all-female clerk class.
2: What I wanted to sort of bring out with that blog post was that there are that this sort of focus on female beauty can be harmful in you know a variety of ways. So it starts with the assumption that the various allegations against Brett Kavanaugh or selecting women with a certain look or beautiful women uh, are true. I don't actually know, and I, I say that in the blog post, that I, I have no idea whether they're true, but there are very various people who post it's not an accident that all of his clerks are beautiful and that even the professors at Yale were, were sort of, or at least one professor at Yale was grooming them and selecting and, and having them send selfies of themselves in different outfits to see if they met whatever the, The look was that, that was wanted. Um, and that if that's true, one possibility is that the clerks could encounter harassment on the job and that, that, you know, the selection process reflects one of the pieces of the job and that that would obviously be terrible for the clerks. I've heard nothing at all, um, suggesting that he harasses any of his law clerks. I've heard nothing like that. So, you know, what I talk about is that there's this other possibility that his law clerks have, a, you know, a fine time as clerks and they do well, but that there's still something really problematic about, you know, him selecting people in part based on what they look like and that this is, this may be a harm to people who never get an interview in the first place. So they may not even realize what's going on, but that it's sort of, I mean, there's already a kind of um, sort of beauty preference, I think, that, that's quite salient, and they're all this, you know, research suggesting that people make more money if they're pretty and whatever. Um, and I think that's true for men, but in different qualities, like if they're tall and handsome and, and things like this and strong, but, you know, that this would contribute to it, and it would stand out because it, to to be noticeable that somebody's actually hiring model like law clerks all the time, that 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 would contribute to a a kind of process where part of the job is being aesthetically pleasing to the employer, and that that would be really bad. But it's really more about the possibility that I don't mean to suggest that he is doing that, because I really don't know.
0: Ms. Cole, how how did you think about that piece of of the last few weeks where, um, and, and more generally, I suppose, some of that reporting that, that you mentioned, Professor, was done by Slate's uh, Dahlia Lithwick and Susan Matthews regarding a couple of professors at Yale seeming to import and, and price in some pieces that were not particularly related to, to legal prowess into the, the law clerk grooming and selection process. Um, Ms. Cole, do you have some concerns as to that particular uh, issue generally when, when uh, along those lines that were reported in Slate?
3: sort of, I mean, yes, of course I have issues with it. If it's true, it doesn't, it's, if it's true, it's not good. Right. But, um, I'll tell you what it brought up for me was that it reminded me of the fact that I think and on a tangent, but I think you'll see where I'm going with it, which is I think pass fail at law school is very dangerous. And, and what I always thought of at Yale was that they didn't have grades. And I don't think Harvard, I think Harvard went pass fail. I was at Harvard. We had grades. And I always thought when I was there, what a good thing that we have grades, because what grades do is it allows you to differentiate yourself based on how hard you work and how smart you are and how, you know, and and how good a lawyer you are. And I remember always thinking, you know, at first people would say, well, Yale seems like so laid back because it's pass-fail and you're smart and that's great. But, you know, I always remember after having kind of gone through what the clerkship process is, which, which has its political components, there's no question about that in terms of getting those clerkships, I always thought it was really interesting to me that that at Yale it must be very hard. You know, how do you distinguish yourself in a world of past? fail? I think they have an honors, so, you know, you can distinguish yourself a bit, get an an honors. But, um, you know, Justice Scalia, I remember when he used to hire law clerks, would often say, well, what does an H mean? You know, I don't know what that means. And what it means to me is, okay, so who's doing the selecting? How are we differentiating who's at the top, top, top of the class? Because it's not based on who's getting straight A's or A pluses. It's got to be based on something else, which is how much are we raising our hand in class? How much are you going and talking to the professor? How much are you making yourself, are you, are you getting close to professors who have the ear of justices or, or feeder judges who matter in this process? You know, I thought that that process of getting a clerkship must, must be much harder at a place where they didn't have, you know, real stratified grades. And so when that story came out, the first thing it did was remind me of that thought because whether or not, I mean, I don't know exactly what the Brett Kavanaugh's position is on who he hires and if he really cares if someone's attractive or not, you know, it does sound like there was very much a, you know, some kind of pipeline there into his chambers that was guided by who, um, you know, who the recommenders were and, and, you know, not necessarily guided by who had the best grades because there weren't any.
2: That's really true. My my recollection when I was clerking for Black men was that when we were going through resumes and letters that there was a letter about a particular candidate and it was from someone at Yale and it basically just said, hire this person. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was just struck by that because all of the other letters said things about the candidate and you know and this was just like from somebody who i guess was trusted and just said hire this person and i remember saying you know maybe we shouldn't hire this person because this is really offensive to me and but you know the, the thought was well no obviously this is someone who the justice trusts and you know so i i think that that's a really insightful point about the, 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 having to fill in the blanks so that if, if you don't have, like, like grades feel oppressive, but at least there's a uniformity about them and that once, you're, once you get rid of them, then something else comes in to fill the vacuum and it's often really inappropriate.
0: Right. I can remember a few moments at uh, UCLA where I wasn't terribly pleased that we had the stratified grading system, but I, I do appreciate some of those problematic dynamics that you, you refer to. So maybe just one more, Professor Miss Cole mentioned this a bit, that there should not be an asterisk after the the law clerks that have clerked this term or in subsequent terms for for Brett Kavanaugh. that, it does seem like it would be unfair, right, to maybe expect that a female clerk aspiring attorney should feel some compunction or maybe feel some responsibility to her gender to uh, shy away from a role with Justice Kavanaugh and knowing that perhaps there's a piece of that role being offered that's at least a little bit sort of just political strategy? What are your thoughts on that?
2: I would not expect anybody who has the opportunity to clerk for the Supreme Court to be feeling some sort of gender loyalty or something like that. I, you know, That seems to me is just well, way too much to ask given, given the opportunity and the doors that such a clerkship opens for people as Cole was describing before. So, so no, I mean, there's obviously, you know, there's an extreme, you know, there are people where they're just too, you know, too horrifying to that. You just don't take a job with them. But I think that justice Kavanaugh is not in, in that category. So I would agree that there should be no asterisk next to the names of people uh, including women who take a clerkship with him. I don't really know whether he hires people of different political views or, or he doesn't. I, as I said, I think he will know where he comes out on things regardless, so that won't really matter that much. But, you know, clerking with anybody who disagrees is going to present painful moments where, you know, you think something should come out a particular way and, Your justice says, no, it's not coming out that way. Write me, you know, draft an opinion. You can't say, well, you know, I'm not comfortable and walk away. (laughs) You know, and and, I mean, I suppose you could do that once a year, maybe. But at some point, you know, the justice says, I think you might be confused about what your job is here. Um, You are, in a sense, a scribe. (laughs) And so, you know, say what I want you to say. And so that's hard, but I don't think it's going to be harder just because it's Justice Kavanaugh as opposed to a different justice that the law clerk might disagree with.
0: Then maybe just one last one to close, and I would preface this question by conceding it might be a fairly impossible one to sensibly regard. But if you had to kind of aggregate the the totality of the last few weeks, including the commencement of this now first ever majority female class, and also— the hearings that we went through involving Brett Kavanaugh, the sexual assault allegations, his response to those, the fight we had as a country, the, uh, Ms. Cole, do you feel sort of in, in the aggregate that the overall impact on um, maybe gender equality, uh, the way folks regard these issues has been a net positive or will be in the future a net positive based on the um, equality we see at the, the clerk class now or, or sort of overall these last few weeks maybe worse in, in, in that regard. And again, I, I know that's a sort of a big, odd question.
3: It's not that odd, and it's not that hard to answer for me. I mean, for me, it's a, we are in a huge deficit. I don't think we're anywhere close to having a positive result. I think it's great that we have more female law clerks. I think it was probably trending in that direction regardless for various reasons. I mean, I, and I think that's that's great. But I think the impact of having, you know, half a class of women law clerks is absolutely nothing, nothing meaningless compared to what I think our country just endured by the course of his nomination and and watching those hearings. Um, I think it was a big setback for um, for I I don't want to say for gender equality. I'm not sure that's what I'm talking about but I think certainly for people who are sexual assault victims or victims of sexual harassment, I think that the overall feeling there was no, it's no different. A powerful man is a powerful man and he's an he and the people around him feel that he is entitled to this position. And that unless you have some very clear evidence, evidence that, you know, is almost impossible to obtain in these sorts of cases that someone who comes forward and is thoughtful and credible and has no reason to lie about her testimony, in fact, has every reason to keep it secret, is not going to be believed, and that a man who gets up and is belligerent and uh, seems to be not telling the truth about a number of things, big and small, and but behaves as though he's entitled to the position that he is about to receive, I think, you know, that that he wins and she loses is the takeaway from the last few weeks, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many people in this country. And I think, you know, to just add on to that, I think the other piece of this is that I think with every, you know, every time something like this happens and that person gets put on the court and it feels incredibly political because it was, I think it also takes away and I, by the way, I put the political piece on Republicans and Democrats, but it was a very political process um i think it takes away from them the legitimacy of the court and i think when you think about the legitimacy of the court look the, the supreme court doesn't have you know they don't have an army behind them to enforce the rules they enforce, they're, they're uh, as powerful as they are because we believe in them we believe that they are right we believe that they are fair we believe that they are just we believe that they are trying to do the right thing and i think with every you know everything like this that i witness it i think you know for the country or at least for some of the country it takes away the legitimacy of the court, and I think that's a very, very dangerous
0: thing. Yeah, Professor, do you have concluding thoughts on these past few months and, and their impact on gender relations, or, or uh, as Ms. Cole said, the, the court generally?
2: Yes, I, I agree with everything that Ms. Cole said. I think that it was really a terrible experience watching these hearings. I can say that just um, the students, the female, some of the female students here, felt completely traumatized by what they saw because there was somebody who was credible describing in, you know, in a painful setting what had happened to her. And then there was just, you know, people reacted as, the, you know, I mean, the President of the United States who often says things that are problematic, but he, he made fun of her. And, you know, the the overall sense was that you... There's no place you can occupy as a woman where you will actually be heard and believed um, regardless of the lack of incentives to lie and also regardless of how completely absurd the, you know, the the other side's witnesses. You know, he gets up and he did. He said things that were false. Um, He acted like an entitled, spoiled bully. And uh, he was disrespectful to female senators and, and yet this didn't in any way. So I think what ended up happening is what a lot of women saw that this is what happens, you know, I mean it's a little bit like when people watched the OJ Simpson trial years ago and it was going on for a year and it be- it was sort of the birth of, you know, 24 hour news cycle uh, cycle. And, and that's, People walked away thinking, okay, that's what a criminal trial in the United States looks like. And, of course, they were mistaken about that in many ways. But but this time, it's, it's harder to reassure people that, that the judge, you know, when especially when he yelled that he had to wait 10 days. And you think about all of the people languishing in jail awaiting trial and his the lack of empathy. And I, so I, I think that it does detract from the legitimacy of the court. And I think it does leave a lot of women feeling like if they were victims or will be victims of sexual assault, they might as well just keep it to themselves.
0: And um, then we can go ahead and, and leave it there for now. Tara Cole from Gangtire, Tire, and Brown in Beverly Hills. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, Professor Sherry Cole from Cornell. Thank you as well for joining the show.
2: Uh, thank you, too.
0: And that's our show for October 19th, 2018. Thanks again so much to all of my guests, Tara Cole from Gangtire, Tire, Raymer N. Brown, and Professor Sherry Kolb from Cornell. That's also to Nick Sonnenberg. And to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. Of course, thanks to you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of California CLE credit can be yours for having tuned in to the program. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Complete that and one hour. Credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to find us via the various podcast streaming avenues where we are now available. You can search for us in iTunes and the podcast app and really just about anywhere you find your podcasts by searching for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. Finding us there and subscribing, liking, or rating, and reviewing our our podcast is greatly appreciated it helps others find the program. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.